Lopate at large. I'm Ludwig Lopate. Russia is the largest country in the world. It spans from Eastern Europe to Northern Asia, and that has led to an historic debate over Russian identity and its place in the world that has been at the core of Russian foreign policy for centuries. Associate Professor Matthew Schmidt, the University of New Haven, joins us now to help us to better understand the complexity of this history and how it affects the current situation in Ukraine and elsewhere. Welcome to our show. Thank you. You wrote an article a few years back about the history of Eurasianist thinking from its roots in Peter the Great's early 18th century court to the contemporary version. How would you describe Eurasianist thinking? Is Eurasia a place or, or an idea? Oh, well, that's the, that's the crux of it, right? So uh, Russian thought, uh, intellectual thought, has, has gone back and forth and has essentially today arrived back at the version that is both things simultaneously. It, um, it, it takes this idea and basically says that if you, if you look at the mountains in the West, right, if you look at the, the, uh, the Alps, um, you look at the Carpathians, you turn and run south along uh, the Caucasus Mountains, the Himalayans, and you turn up you know, sort of the East Coast where you have a, a rugged mountainous range um, opposite Japan. This bowl, if you will, that sits in here is Eurasia. And the openness of that bowl creates a kind of culture, Eurasian culture, that is different from Western culture, which um, some philosophers have argued, Nazi philosopher Carl Schmitt, uh, has said is, is Euro-Atlantic, right? It's based on maritime uh, empires. And then that what you see in the middle here is a land-based empire. And because you had, say, the Mongols sweeping across it uh, over time, there's a great concern for security of the peoples on the Eurasian steppe. And because of that great security concern, you have a move over time, an evolution away from early democratic forms of government to authoritarian ones, to autocratic ones. So has it um, come to be seen if, in Russia, at least as a third way between communism and Western democracy? Uh, it's more than just between communism. It's it's between what they would call, you know, Asianism, however it is mm -hmm. they're, they're defining it. All, all of these ideas are are not nuanced and they're, they're fundamentally, uh, you know, racist. They're fundamentally stereotyping entire peoples. But they would say something like Asian versus Western. So uh, is this question of identity a major factor in how Russian foreign policy turns nowadays? I think it is. Uh, the, the early work that I did looked at the influence of this idea and, and traced its major thinkers and writers all the way from the 19th century to the, the 1990s, to the collapse of the Soviet Union and what Putin, I think rightfully so, has called the trauma of that collapse for the Russian people are really the Soviet peoples um, in this region and in the attempt to recreate some kind of national or multinational identity, you end up back at this place of Eurasianism where you can bring in, uh, you know, peoples in, in Central Asia with peoples uh, in, in Western, you know, Russia with peoples in the Far East and Siberia. And you can create a kind of national identity that isn't technically national because you have, you know, different sovereign states. But haven't some Russian politicians recently revealed what might be seen as an inflated view of Russia's place in history, it's kind of abetted by uh, 
President Putin. Uh, during the 20th century, there were two world wars, the Spanish flu, the Holocaust, a global depression, and yet a major political party has proposed a declaration in the state Duma that considers, I'm quoting, that considers the collapse of the USSR the main geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Yeah. So, so again, the idea is, I, th I think people in the West tend to misunderstand politics. They think politics is about issues, right? Are we going to vote for Build Back Better or something else? And then, you know, where do we line up on that? But politics is really about identity. It's about defining yourself with an issue as the proxy for defining who you are and what your worldview is. And Eurasianism is something that I think affected Putin personally and then started to change the politics in Russia uh, after the 90s uh, to create a new kind of post-Soviet identity that could say, hey, we were traumatized by this event of losing the Soviet Union, but we're not communists anymore. We're something else, but the something else we are is unique. It's not Western. It's not Asian. It's Eurasian, led by the Russians, right? And it's great, right? It's, it's, it's Putin's version of, of MAG. It's, it's, it's make Russia great again, only more than Russia. Make it Eurasia great again. Dmitry Trenin has asked, what is Russia and who is Russian? So is this something up for, for dispute? Yes, it's, it's just like your, your uh, very present first question, right, which is, is, is Eurasia a place or it's an idea? Um, and so it's the same idea. You see it in a, in a place like America, too, where people say, does being Russian mean having certain values, right? Whether or not you are ethnically Russian, right, or ethnically Kazakh. Um, but does it mean seeing the world in a certain way uh, in opposition to what they assume Western European values are right, or, or Asian values are? Uh, or is it a blood kind of thing? Um, and I would say that today most people would probably see it as a values-based thing because the Soviet Union was composed of you know, 89 different actual nationalities um, and, and created a kind of common identity, um, if nothing else, in the, you know, the communist experiment. Well, the Slavs are the largest ethno-linguistic group in Europe, but haven't some modern Eurasianists claimed that Russian orthodoxy uh, is the only Christian religion that possesses a natural closeness to Buddhist, Confucian, and Islamic cultures? Yes, <laughs> they have. And uh, you know, the easy way to put this is, is that many people consider uh, Moscow or consider Russia the third Rome, right? So, so Rome falls in the West, actual Rome falls, and then Constantinople, the second Rome, falls. And then what is left is, is the third Rome in, frankly, in Kiev, and then in Moscow, and that, that Russian Orthodoxy, right, which leads, in their mind, all Orthodox churches, um, it is the last bastion, the, the real sort of expression of, of authentic Christianity. But wasn't communism atheistic, in theory, anyway? Yeah, in theory it was. Many people held on to their beliefs. Uh, and what you see, you know, after the, the Soviet Union collapses is, is that suddenly religion pops back up pretty quick, right? It was, it was never really gone. Recent Russian court rulings ordered a ban on human uh, on a human rights group, the Memorial International, which was founded in 1989 by Soviet dissidents to preserve memories of Soviet repression. So, are we seeing some kind of retrenchment here? Putin is weak. Uh, people often think he's some kind of a grand strategist uh, and that he's a quote unquote strong man. 
but he's losing more and more of his control over Russian society. And one way that you see that um, in countries is when leaders have to start cracking down more. Um, Putin has a lot of legitimacy still in the population, but a lot less so than he used to just a few years ago. And he has to crack down more. He has to use force more frequently to maintain control. And that's a sign not of strength. It's a sign of weakness. Well, it's becoming more authoritarian, but uh, that's not unique to Russia today. No, you see that in any country. If you see a situation, I mean, what political science tells us is that if you see a situation where, you know, an authoritarian or a semi-authoritarian um, leadership is, is able to rule sort of what we used to call managed democracy in Russia, right? There, there is politics that does take place. Putin's not an absolute dictator. Um, you know, he has a political party. That's a real party that represents, um, you know, the, the will of a, a portion of the population. Um, if that starts to, to weaken, then he has to move towards more forms of force, whether that force is, you know, his outright murder, which he has, he has moved to, um, or, uh, you know, whether it's, it's uh, you know, banning uh, opposition groups. And imprisoning his main opposition figure, Navalny. Yeah. One of the things that I think is holding him back in Ukraine and uh, that people need to understand is that the, the war there is not popular amongst uh, the Russian population. People are waiting for sanctions. They don't want sanctions. They just want their life to go on. Uh, there are opposition groups, which were the first ones, um, groups of moms who, who started um, figuring out that other moms have lost sons uh, in, in 2014 and uh, had put together the data on that, right, to show, uh, show how many lives have been lost, right? And this is incredibly violent war. It's 14,000 people have been killed in this war. Two million people have been displaced. I think, I think people don't understand the scale of it. Um, so that's, that's unpopular in Russia. Uh, you have uh, the COVID situation, which is going very poorly. The government is hiding data. Um, they are, are nearly as bad as we are with half the population. Um, and Putin is getting a lot of uh, blowback for that. And then you have a situation here where you have had a sustained um, freedom movement, uh, democratic movement mm -hmm. in Russia. And those three things will start to coalesce if he pushes too hard in Ukraine. At least I think they will um, and pose a real threat to his system of government. Well, sanctions were imposed uh, at, in, at, in 1914 after uh, uh, Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula. How much of an impact have those sanctions had? Because they don't seem to have had much of, uh, seem to be much of a threat right now. They're, they're limited. Um, you know, they were aimed at a handful of uh, oligarchs, right? A handful of these, uh, you know, the small group of very rich and powerful people who essentially run the country. Um, uh, you've got the Magnitsky uh, sanctions also, uh, which sought to do this to, uh, because of a, a murder of, of a, of a financier um, in Russia a few years before, and, and we have those in place. And you actually have strong support from both parties here in the U.S. You've got strong support in Europe for it, but they've been limited. One of the cards that Biden is holding back is to uh, block Russia from access to the SWIFT system, which is a, a clearance system based in Switzerland that really allows for large-scale international deals to go through. Right. It verifies and processes the money and, and just works like a wire transfer system um, for your bank. If Russia is blocked out of that, um, that will hurt a lot of um, 
a lot of Russian industry. Well, the European market is an increasingly vital place for the sale of Russian national gas and oil, which now accounts for some 25% of all Russian exports, 6% of its gross domestic product. Um, so uh, is, is there any threat to that? Isn't Europe totally dependent right now on those sales? Uh, in the short term, they are. What you're talking about there is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, that now would, would bypass Ukraine, uh, where, where most of the Russian gas comes into Europe from uh, and would go to Germany. That pipeline is built. It's been controversial. Um, the Biden administration supported it, I think, in an effort to hold an olive branch out uh, to Putin and kind of persuade him away from Ukraine. Um, that hasn't worked, and and what happened instead is that even though the you know the pipeline is, is operational, it could be operational. The Germans have withheld uh, you know legal certification, so it's not running yet. And again, that's one of those one of those trump cards that the West is holding back to try to push Russia away from Ukraine. There's a lot of economic incentive to open that for Germany and for Western Europe, but in the long term. For years already, we've been opening up a lot of LNG, a lot of liquid natural gas products um, to ship essentially American and Canadian natural gas, um, which would make us the first or second largest producer in the world behind Russia. Um, and, and we represent a huge economic threat to Russia in that way. And if, um, you know, if those terminals continue to build up, even if this pipeline goes, you know, in five or 10 years, uh, a, a lot of that, that 6% of their GDP may be, may be taken away um, by our market share. Well, you mentioned that as a trump card, but forgive the pun. Uh, <laughs> there were uh, we got mixed messages about the relationship between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump over the the four years of the Trump presidency. Um, there were even people who joked that um, that uh, if Trump were to eat Italian food, he would insist that it be Putinesca. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah. so how does that apply today? Now, uh, the, obviously, Biden is taking a harder line, although um, I, it looks like everybody's afraid to take too hard a line. I don't think they're afraid because, uh, you know, they're, they're first they're somehow a, a afraid of Russia's threat to us. Again, Russia's not it, it is a powerful um, it's a powerful entity, right, militarily and in international relations in its near abroad. In places like Ukraine and Central Asia, and then in the, you know in the in the other end of the spectrum, in the case of nuclear war, but it can't actually project power globally like the United States can. The United States can send troops to places like Afghanistan, and you know, um, however poorly the mission might go, functionally speaking, they're effective. You can send a lot of them. Russia can't really do that, um, and so you know, so that's that's sort of point number one, and the reason that the West. Uh, is not being as hard on Russia as possible as he can make a lot of problems in it near abroad, in, in Europe, right? And they don't want to push him too far because their interest is, isn't in defeating Russia. It isn't in beating Vladimir Putin. It's in not having a war start um, or expand. And so they're trying to offer carrots and sticks and carrots and sticks and go through that process. But Joe Biden understands foreign policy. He said this, remember, that to him, foreign policy isn't hard, right? It's about knowing the other guy. And Joe Biden knows Putin. And I think he's positioning himself quite well here to to pressure Putin by signaling to Putin that he knows um, Putin's weak domestically or weakening uh, and that a war in Ukraine would be bad. So he's going to call Putin's bluff a little bit there, that there's going to be, frankly, some kind of um, Cuban missile crisis backroom deal. 
Biden, Biden knows Putin. He understands Biden, Putin's got a safe face to his own public. So there'll be something, my explanation is that that Putin can come back and say, hey, I won. I beat, I beat Biden. And Biden's the bigger person, right? Biden's like the adult who's not reacting to the provocation of the kid. The adult says, fine, you want to yell at me? Yell at me. I'll walk away, right? I'm not going to yell back. And and I think that's really how to understand uh, these moves to to you know to not be quote unquote as hard on Putin as possible. Is they're they're trying to work him in a more mature way. My guess is Matthew Schmidt, an expert on defense and intelligence, Russia, uh, Ukraine, Vladimir Putin, Europe, and U.S. foreign policy, North Korea, and elsewhere. And this is WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM streaming live at WBAI dot org. Uh, Putin said that Moscow was not to blame for talk of, quote, war, 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 because it was merely defending historically Russian territories. He said that it was the United States that came with its missiles to our home, to the doorstep of our home, referring to NATO expansion. Uh, and he says, and you demand from me some guarantees. You should give us guarantees, you, and right away, right now. So, Ray, so first of all, who has a historical claim on what chunk of dirt is contested based on when you start your count of, of history, right? When does the clock start on this? Hmm. Uh, you know, did the Russians take away this chunk of land, um, you know, from the Cossacks or the Mongols or whomever, right? Where do you start that, that, that clock? So that's a specious claim uh, on his part. He's using it, uh, he's using it, you know, for his domestic uh, audience, Um but he does have an argument that the West clearly made um, a statement that said it would not expand East to threaten Russia in the 1990s after the collapse of the Soviet Union, wouldn't expand NATO in that direction, and then it did. Um, but the counter to that is also that all these, these claims of missiles and tanks and everything is, is pretty, it's pretty specious, right? If, if Ukraine becomes part of NATO, and I don't expect that at all, and we put missiles in Kiev, say, they don't hit Moscow any faster than the missiles in Warsaw do, mm. right? There's a misunderstanding of, of modern warfare. And so the territory itself isn't really that important. Or for instance, Putin says, I have to take Crimea for strategic purposes. But if, if war breaks out, our aircraft in Turkey fly up and his aircraft, not in, in Crimea, but to the east in Novodarsis, fly up and they release missiles that can fly 300 mm. miles. So it's all about you symbolism. But, but I guess it's, it's a way of, of uh, re reacting to the fact that so many of the, uh, the former Eastern European satellite states have joined NATO, Hungary, Poland, the Czech Republic, Romania, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Bulgaria, Albania. I probably left out a couple. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so he, he has legitimate grievance there in that, uh, you know, we, we did do what we said we wouldn't do. But... It's not entirely legitimate because those countries have uh, autonomy. And over time, they decided they wanted to be part of these organizations and part to protect them from historical Russian overreach. And, uh, and then that's what they did. And what he's doing right now is he's creating a threat uh, from Ukraine, right, or from NATO presence in other countries on his border, say in, say in the Baltics, that doesn't exist. He's the one who creates the threat, not NATO. NATO has no intention of, of attacking Moscow. There's no intention of taking Russian territory, nor does Ukraine. That's, that's Vladimir Putin saying those things to drum up war amongst his own population. Now, um, 
uh, let me ask you about some of the people uh, who uh, Americans will not really know much about, but who play important roles in this. For example, Alexander Kelevich Dugin. What role has he played in this discussion? So uh, Dugin is one of these political philosophers who restructured, sort of found Eurasianism and rebuilt it in the 1990s. And so um, he, he wrote a very famous textbook there called uh, Geopolitics, um, which was, was used in military academies and argued what I said about, about Eurasianism and said, there's this, there's this physical space that, that is ours. Um, and on this physical space are peoples that have different values. And so one way to, to explain the different values is that in, in the, the 2014 Olympics, right, um, in Sochi, uh, Vladimir Putin passed this law, right, this anti-LGBTQ uh, law, hmm. right, and, and said in a speech, Right. We'll, we'll let your athletes come over and compete here, but and we won't arrest them. But in our country, essentially, we don't believe in it. We don't believe in, in people um, having those identities. We don't believe in giving them rights. And he, he said, right, this is this is unique. This is unique to Russia and this is unique to Eurasian peoples. And so we're, we're you know, more conservative. It's kind of it's kind of like what happens in America when when people from where I'm from in Kansas often say things like, well, we're the real Americans. Right. And people from New York are not real Americans <laughs> for some reason. Um, and that's kind of what he said. He said, my, my entire country are are real people. We're not we're not with the, the leftist extremists in, in Western Europe that let let people, you know, you know, marry whomever they want and so forth. Do Putin and the larger political elite believe that Russia's place is to be found in the Euro Atlantic or the Eurasian model? Because that brings I, I, us back to Peter the Great, doesn't it? Yeah, I think they clearly see it as, as the Eurasian model. And Peter the Great was the, was the Russian leader who really made created a Russia. Um, and he understood that Russia had to be seen as a European country. And so he had been a shipbuilder um, in the West, in Europe for a while, and, and then in his youth, and then came back to Russia and, and sought very much to institute um, westernizing traditions. Uh, in Russia, in the, in the was, early 18th century. Yeah. And so so he was trying to that's why he built his capital city, um, St. Petersburg, uh, in the far west. Right. It's, it's very close uh, when you get out on the Baltic Sea to, to get to, you know, all of northern Europe. And um, and that's what he was. That's what he was trying to do. And he saw Europe, he saw Russia as part of the European imperial system. I don't think he saw himself. Uh, as Eurasianist, he saw the Far East as something to be conquered by, you know, Europeanized Russia. He wanted and, to incorporate uh, the territory he'd won during his war with Charles, the the twelfth of Sweden, and and yeah. and to move Russia's place on European maps of the day from the Asian continent into the, the Europe, Europe <laughs> European pages. Yeah, and and when you look at say World War One, two people forget that the, the Russian Empire extended as far as Warsaw. Um, and, and so, yes, he very much saw himself in that, especially in, in a, a time like the late 19th century or early 20th century, there was always this sense of insecurity about the Russian elite, right, and the Russian imperial court, and were they European? And, and most of them did not speak Russian. They spoke French, right, hmm. um, or, or German. And so, and they, you know, they intermarried with with Western European monarchies, and so that's what they were. That's what they very much were trying to do. And part of the revolution in 1917 
was to say, who are these people that are trying to rule us that can't even speak our language? By redrawing the eastern boundary of Europe to include Russia, uh, didn't Peter strengthen the position of his empire in the minds of the established European monarchs? Yeah, he, he absolutely did. And, and Russia was understood to be that kind of a place. It was also understood to be, um, you know, uh, sort of exotic because pe people knew, people would take, you know, long, long uh, trips through rural Russia and move to the east and they would wax up on about, about uh, you know, peasant villages and pure natural life and these kinds of things, which is also partly what, what was picked up by what are called the Slavophiles, the ones who really started the, creating this idea of Eurasianism, right? This idea of, well, re real Russians don't live in Moscow or St. Petersburg, right? Real, real Russians live in, in Russia's version of Kansas. Hmm. But uh, how did he deal with the fact that so much of Russian territory was in Asia? Wasn't the then accepted geographical definition of Europe that it was bounded in the south by the Mediterranean Sea, in the west by the Atlantic Ocean, the north by the Baltic Sea, and the east by the banks of the Don River. That's in Ukraine. Yeah, the Don, or people would push it out to the Ural Mountains. Well, then um, the it, was pushed to, it was pushed to the Ural Mountains by actually Peter's court geographer, v v Vasily yeah. Tatyshev. Yeah, and so... The, the Ural Mountains, however, this is this idea of Eurasianism in this flat place where there's there's no natural barrier to movement. Um, the Ural Mountains are not very tall. They've never posed a significant barrier, even even in you know with, again with with Mongol times to to moving east through west um, uh, through those ranges, and and so basically saw the the east of Russia uh, like like Americans saw the west. It was a place to go and to conquer. Um, you know, there were there were savage natives and, and these kinds of things out there. Um, and that's what they went to do. And, they, and you know, they went the, the quick way around uh, by sea and they, they founded Vladivostok, which is named after the, you know, Vlad, the, you know, the great saint of, of Russia. Um, and and they sought to conquer the East in that way. And there's a lot of cultural similarity in that sense between uh, Russia and the United States. They both have a sense of manifest destiny. Mm that drives culture. Well, how did the European monarchs respond to uh, the Peter's uh, claim that uh, the Russian boundaries should be expanded into Asia? Wasn't Catherine the Great still trying to accomplish the cultural integration of Russia into Europe a half century later when she proclaimed in 1766 that Russia is a European power? Yes. Um, and she was trying to do what, what um, Peter had failed to do, which is to capture that warm water port um, in the south. Um, and, and part of what happened is, is my peoples, uh, the Volga Germans, um, you know, ended up down there to be sort of the deal was we're not you don't get to serve in the military, but we're not going to tax you. And, and you have to live down here and sort of defend, defend the empire. Um, and, and all of that was seen as being OK. It was seen as being a normal kind of imperialism, like Western Europe was doing, though, maybe in Africa or in India, um, Russia was doing in its near abroad because Russia was was a land empire, although it very much wanted to also have a navy, right, to become a naval empire. It has never really succeeded at that. When he was in Brunei for a summit of the Asian Pacific Economic Consortium, the APEC, and attempting to build stronger economic ties with China and the rest of the region, didn't Putin declare that Russia always felt itself a Eurasian country? He did. And 
what he meant there was we have this connection to Asia as well as this connection to Europe, but essentially saying, you know, I'm going to emphasize my connection to Asia. Um, you know, absolutely. I mean, part, part of this was just saying, saying this for, for strategic reasons to, to build an economic relationship. But it's also true that Russians will, again, as a stereotype, will look to Asia and say, well, these places are more autocratic. And so while, while, while we don't want to be uh, Xi Jinping, right, then, um, then uh, you know, we, we we're closer to him than we are to, uh, you know, Boris Johnson. So how are Russian relations with China these days? They're kind of what they always are. They're a mess. Um, messy, I should say. They're messy in the seesaw back and forth. Um, Russia is, there's, there's one issue which is on the border of Russia and China. You have a lot of illegal immigration where uh, Chinese move across the border and live in what is functionally Russia. There's even fairly unmarked borders, and so it's hard to tell sometimes. The analog is kind of like, uh, you know, the American southern border, although um, not the same because these are these are just populations that live there and, and aren't really um, thought of as illegal. Um, but um, so that's kind of in there. And there's this long term anxiety about Russian demographics. Uh, like I said, they're about half the size of the U.S. They have a relatively small economy and their birth rate is plummeting. Um, and so one of the things. Putin has done is tried to pay out money to encourage people to have more babies hmm. and these kinds of things. And that is directed towards this encroachment of large population country like, like China into its territory. Um, on the other hand, they're trying to cozy up because I think Putin, the realist, sees that that um, the, the, the fulcrum of the world, to, to use Eurasianist terms again, uh, is shifting east to not Eurasia, but to Asia. And that that Russia needs to align itself there, needs to, in essence, do the opposite of what, what Peter and Catherine were trying to do, and connect itself more strongly to the uh, to the east and to that fulcrum instead of European West. Meanwhile, we still have the situation on the border of Ukraine. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Back with Matthew Schmidt, an associate professor of national security and political science, University of New Haven, who's worked as a consultant with the Senate and House Armed Services Committee and members of Congress. And we're talking about Russia and it, how it sees itself uh, in, in the world. Um, is there still a question of whether Russia wants to become part of the secular material postmodern West represented by the countries of Euro-Atlantic world, or will it move closer to a vision of a kind of uniquely Eurasian model that's more spiritual, more ambivalent towards the supposed benefits of modernity, less integrated into the globalized trade, cultural, and political networks that define modernity? I don't think it, it uh, wants to isolate itself from the, you know, from the trade networks and things like that. It wants to be in all of those and be different and punch above its weight. Um, so it, it wants to be in those places, but not, uh, you know, not support uh, human rights in the way that Western Europe might support them. But 
that's the vision of the leadership. That's the vision of, if you will, the, the, the Putin system of government, right? Putinism. The Russian population isn't necessarily that way. You have sustained um, dem democracy movements now over the last few years, right? Chiefly symbolized by Navalny, right? The Memorial um, also. And, and those aren't going away. And if Putin pushes too hard, he will inflame them, right? The, the population is not monolithic. They're not brainwashed by Putin. They were bought off by Putin um, after the disaster of the 1990s and his ability to use oil and gas money to up people's living standards. But it's been a long time since then. And, uh, and the population could very well change. Russia is not destined to be a non-democratic state. It has a historical tradition of it, and it can return to it. Do we have to understand the thinking of, of Russian intellectuals uh, over the years to understand what's going on? For example, Nikolai Danilevsky, uh, who was a uh, 19th century uh, writer, was the first to define Eurasia as a distinct geographic entity separate from both Europe and Asia. And didn't he write that since Russia was foreign to the European world by virtue of its inner workings and too strong and powerful to take its place as just one of, of many members of the European family. It couldn't take a place in history worthy of itself and of Slavdom unless it became the head of a unique, independent political system of countries uh, and could serve as a balance to Europe. Are we still seeing yeah, well, that in, in play yeah. today? <laughs> yes, that's... That's Putin, right? That's that's Putin could say that today. Has said that today in mm. in many speeches, right? In essence, um, and and Danilevsky's idea of Slavdom is essentially this idea that there's this different set of values that emanates from from this Eurasian step, um, and that Russia has a manifest destiny um, to be to be greater than just uh, an equal state of Europe, uh, but to be something unique and something greater. Again, it's not. Um, it's not unfair to, to say that what you see in the, in the 19th century Slavists and what you see in Putin today is their own version of, you know, make Russia great again. It's their own version of Bob. Well, it's, it's a, a version of messianism, isn't it? The Polish writer Czesław Milos has argued that a collective body, a human society, cannot be the savior. Yes, I, I love Milos. I'm so happy that you brought him up. Um, he was always extremely nervous about anybody invoking nationalism, invoking this idea of a people's identity. He would say he was born in this thing, uh, you know, called the Duke of Lithuania that ceased to exist, you know, in his childhood. And then he became part of an independent thing called Poland and that ceased to exist. And then, he, you know, um, and he rejected the whole concept. And so, you know, that's, that's exactly, um, what his response was, and that was in many ways the core of his writing, um, and and that's that I think um, is the core of the the Russian democracy movement, which says, look, we can be proud to be Russian, but we're not unique in the sense that that you know that we're we're, we're like so different from Europeans, right? Any more than than Europeans are different from each other, right? The the variation inside the inside this group of peoples called Europeans is greater than the variation between the collective idea of Europeans and the collective idea of Russians or Eurasians. And so they're, they're very much pushing in the often quote uh, Miłosz's poetry on this. But as I mentioned earlier, they make a distinction between Russian 
orthodoxy, the orthodox religion, and uh, the, the Christian religion, ver the versions of the Christianity in other parts of the world. How, how do they see it as different, and how do they see it as uniquely Russian? Uh, well, they, what they see, from, you know, on the on the outside is is that they didn't lose the the uh, the traditional service, right? The priest is turned away from the congregation, um, just like you would see in an old style, uh, you know, uh, Catholic mass, a, a Latin mass, and these kinds of things. And so they they didn't do that. There's um, a stronger focus on things like the um, um, so I'm, I'm losing my thought here. Uh, are things like the Transfiguration um, than Easter, um, and so you, you see these subtle kinds of, of theological differences. Um, in many ways, it's best to just explain it as orthodoxy in general arrives at many of the same theological ideas as Christianity, as as, as at least as Catholicism, but in different ways, in different pathways through Scripture. What about other commentators, uh, such as Dmitry Tenin, the director of the Carnegie Moscow Center think tank? Hasn't he argued that Eurasianism is a dead end, uh, a pretentious neither-nor position that creates an unnecessary divide between Europe and Russia? Yes, he has. His book is sitting right here in front of me. Um, and, and I think he's right. Um, and the example of this is exactly how Putin is using it right now. He's using it to, to build a wedge. He's using it to isolate Russia to the detriment of his own people. Um, Putin has has essentially taken the, the, the generation of the 1990s, the people that are my age, uh, that came of age uh, during that, that very, very difficult decade, um, but who expected to live a life in a democratic country. And he's there. He's lost them, right? They, they are a lost generation, wasted uh, opportunity for democracy. And then the generation that grew up, you know, after 2000, uh, grew up seeing Putin differently, seeing Russia differently, and, you know, were, were the ones that were less critical of what he was doing. And then you look at Navalny, and Navalny goes back to that 1990s group again. And he has been successful because he's been able to motivate people in his own generation, but also to bring along the younger generations. But now um, he's but in very jail. And now, and now he's in jail. And uh, as with all revolutions, um, right, it, the question is, is the, does, does MLK do better from jail or, or not, right? Does the revolution um, get a push forward by the courage of, of its leader to, um, you know, be arrested, right, and, and be threatened by the regime because he's, he's now through his own body, right, speaking of messianism, right, um, through his own body, um, signaling and reflecting the brutality of the regime. Um, and I think that remains to be seen. Um, but, but so far, even though you've seen a lot of his followers uh, arrested, right, he's still going strong. They're, they are, he, Navalny is smart because he understands that he's, he's a kind of figure that Putin, if Putin killed him, um, it wouldn't be without cost to Putin. And so he stays alive by staying in that position and he continues to be creative in how he um, keeps his his, uh, his eye, you know, keeps his, his body in the media, right? Keeps it out there. Although he almost died because he was poisoned. Yeah. And that's and that's what happens. That's a regime that is, is afraid, that it, it can't, uh, it, it realizes that Mbolni represents a movement where people see um, Putinism as an illegitimate form of, of governing 
people and reflecting what people really want in their lives. Uh, and so they resort to violence. And, you you know, you see other other examples of this um, elsewhere in the world where, where Putin has sent assassins out. And that's a sign of weakness. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Matthew Schmidt, an associate professor of national security and political science at the University of New Haven, who's written about uh, an aspect of of Russian thinking that most Americans are relatively unaware of, the Eurasianist idea. But uh, I want to uh, right now— in the, in the time that we have left, talk about the situation uh, in Ukraine, because it seems so confusing. Uh, 100,000 soldiers or so um, parked at the border, even though uh, Putin says there's no, they, there are no plans for invasion. So why put them there? It's a chess move. Uh, it puts pressure on the Ukrainian government. It puts pressure on Biden and NATO um, to to, to respond, right? He wants to be taken seriously at the table. And the, the question is, is if he doesn't get what he wants, will he up the pressure by moving troops into Ukraine? Um, he faces a problem where moving troops into Ukraine might hurt him more strategically than it helps him. And, and that's what Biden uh, and the West are counting on. Well, despite the estimated 100,000 Russian troops at its border, hasn't there been less focus in Ukraine on the question of outright invasion and more concern that Moscow will never release its grip, the one that it already has over the occupied swaths of, of Donetsk and Luhansk and, of course, uh, give back Crimea to Ukraine? Yeah, that's the real issue for Ukraine, and they have— um consistently said that they're they are not going to give away those territories continue to see them as occupied um but they may well accept that uh as a, as a state where they just continue to say that these are illegally occupied territories like you see in, in georgia former soviet georgia to the east um in the territories that have been taken away uh there but this is this is a big question you know the majority of the population in the, the dnr and, and the lnr want to be part of Russia, uh, whether or not they want to be autonomous, connected, but they, they functionally want to be a part of Russia. But what people don't understand... Well, are they Russian-speaking? or Most of them are Russian-speaking. I mean, I, I mean, functionally all of them are Russians. Um, and, and, but, but yet people have to understand that Ukrainian and Russian operated in Ukraine something like Spanish and English does now in America. Right? These are both um, languages that most, most people who live in Ukraine speak. It's just a question of if, you're, if your first language is Ukrainian and the second one is Russian or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this area of the country, most people speak Russian. Um, but 35% of the people in that, in that area either want to be part of Ukraine or don't know what they want. And that's not insignificant. So that holds out the idea that eventually Russia overplays its hand there. The economic conditions are too ugly. Uh, in the occupied territories, and, and uh, this goes on too long, and people decide that they'd, they'd rather be part of uh, the Ukrainian government, which seems to be better at governing than the Russian. Uh, it is interesting that uh, the, the the whole issue became a part of American the American political debate some years back, but I suspect that, uh, well, I'm unclear as to how it all played in American politics Um the, the, the whole Ukrainian connection? Uh, the first part is, is that uh, we as, as uh, 
a democracy, as far as we are one, right? See that that our security rests in having a stable international system. Uh, and we want other countries to be democratic. And if, if there's a movement in a country to be democratic, we may intervene, we may not intervene, but we want it to be democratic. And so the way that things went down in that in, in that time and place greatly concerned us because Ukraine's also on the border of, of other democracies that, that we have uh, pledged assistance to, right? And so that's number one. Number two is that Putin has always been using uh, places like Ukraine or Syria or Estonia to do things more than just in Ukraine, you know, and Estonia or Syria, he's using those as, as chits in a game to play global politics. So he draws us in that way. And then I think the big one in the end is that there was so much connection between uh, Ukraine and uh, and Donald Trump in the 2016 election mm-hmm. and, you know, and the uh, the hacking and, uh, and everything else that went on uh, to, you know, risk invalidating his presidency in the election itself and destabilizing American democracy. And I should just say, Putin's biggest strategic goals, right, were achieved uh, in destabilizing America in the, in the way that he did, although it wasn't just his fault. There's a lot, of, a lot of instability already. But he also seeks to, to split up NATO, which he's had some success in threatening, but but now Ukraine is actually tightening NATO, and to split up the European Union, uh, which he has had great success in because um, just like his involvement here in, in the 2016 election, there's good evidence that says he was deeply involved in the Brexit election and uh, and may have pushed the Brexit vote to, um, to the way it ended up. Well, there was also discussion of a Biden connection to Ukraine through his son. Um, so this is uh, is it more complicated than uh, seems immediately apparent? Yeah, on the question of Hunter Biden. I don't know uh, what to say. Um, the The outlines of that story are pretty familiar hmm. for that part of the world. Uh, it's entirely plausible uh, that he was basically invited onto this board. Uh, he made a good bit of money, and his connections were being used. And he, you know, was unaware of what was going on. That wouldn't surprise me if that ends up being true. But I, I don't really know. I don't know. I don't think there's enough data in that case, except to say that I don't think he was doing things intentionally. He might have been somebody else's pawn. Um, and then, you know, there's a there's a, a lot of connections because there's a lot of money uh, in the oligarchy in Ukraine and in Russia that buy, uh, you know, real estate in, in the U.S. that seek influence with political actors here. And you see all of that stuff happening and finding a kind of a target of opportunity in the 2016 election where it comes together in a way that it, it wouldn't have if it didn't have a candidate like Donald Trump. Is there any sense of Eurasianism in a country like Ukraine, or does Ukraine see itself as totally European? The younger generation in Ukraine sees itself as European. One of the biggest things uh, that happened when I was there is when the EU granted Ukrainians uh, visas to go travel to the EU, right? which, which hadn't been the case. So they could, they could simply get on a plane and travel to the EU and stay for 90 days like any other tourist. They didn't have to go through a visa process. So I think that generation really sees itself as European. I think the government under Zelensky really sees itself as European. There are obviously people in the East uh, that would, you know, see themselves as more Russian um, and less European. Uh, you, uh, w- when you're teaching these things, what are your students uh, asking you about? Uh, not much. Until <laughs> we get through a good bit of material because they don't know anything about it. It's uh, 
surprising that uh, they, they, they many, in many cases don't even really know anything about the Soviet Union, might not even know the name uh, or, or would just know the name. It's not covered uh, in high school history classes for the most part uh, because of you know, state requirements to spend more time on, on other things. And they just don't understand, uh, you know, why I'm saying, hey, this is really important to understand the modern world. Um, they also will see things as, as Russia is always bad, Putin is always bad and evil, uh, without understanding the kinds of things that we've been talking about today, which is which is what I try to get them to do. And that, um, I've been very fortunate that I've had some, some wonderful students uh, to work with, and, and many of whom have gone on to um, study Russia and, and this region, um, and have done very well with it. But uh, do you blame the, uh, the the Western media as well for all of the confusion? Because so many the of the things that we've been discussing really don't get talked about much in the press. Right. Well, well you have been gracious enough to invite me on for, you know, whatever spent 50 minutes, an hour. Um, trying to do this in a 30-second or a 90-second soundbite is, is incredibly difficult, and I, I try to do it all the time. And the media, you know, um, tends to move towards a, an us and them kind of black and white, uh, good and evil uh, framework for most of the stories because it's it's easy to write and it's easy for uh, for audiences to understand, even if it's it's not uh, particularly accurate. Well, to what extent has post-Soviet Russia sought refuge in um, quote the confirmation of the fact that we are not like others? I, I think that's what the elite has done. Um, it's complicated, right? I think that Putin really does has, has really imbibed Eurasianism, but he's not he's not an intellectual, right? He doesn't read Danilevsky and and see any of the contradictions in Danilevsky, right? He doesn't he doesn't really read you know Dugin. He just he gets a briefing on it. Um, so well, he well so he's former KGB man, and it seems to me that the image he's usually projecting is of some kind of a macho guy with his shirt off. Yeah. It was ridiculous, like flying with cranes and scuba diving and things like this. I mean, he, you know, he. I don't think that he understands this in the way that we're talking about, but he understands enough of it that it's useful to understand his his behavior. I, I the, you know, the, the population doesn't identify um, with a deep sort of intellectual version of this, but I think a large chunk of the population does identify with this kind of you know make Russia great again movement. So where do you see it all going, or is this impossible to predict? I think it's uh, difficult to predict, and I think that in the in the long term, climate change is really going to push um, Russian society to figure out how to govern itself more effectively. Much of what has happened, in, in my experience, is that uh, people live their lives underneath politics. They're not particularly engaged in it. They see it uh, as something that's that's dangerous, uh, and they find ways to work around it uh, in their daily lives. Because what, what Putin decides to do in Ukraine doesn't really affect them unless their son is at war, right? And and the numbers aren't that high. Um, but when, when climate change starts to happen, it's already happening, and the whole idea of Russia as a cold, snowy place, as, as a place where you have lots of oil and gas, um, but all of that starts to change because you have you have you know renewable energy that starts to take down um, take down that basis of the economy and and change with weather events and these kinds of things. I think it's going to be serious, right? In some sense, Russia faces the problem that Saudi Arabia, right? It's built a society um, of an elite with you know with an underclass that does a lot of construction work on oil and gas, and everybody can see the end of that coming. 
mm-hmm. uh, sooner than expected. And so Saudi Arabia is trying to diversify and, and you know hire Georgetown and Northwestern to put up universities there to educate people to, to move outside of those industries. But those are decades-long pro- projects, and they're probably not going to be fast enough. And Russia's trying to do the same thing, or or it should be trying to do the same thing, but probably isn't moving even as fast as Saudi Arabia is right now. And it so also, I think, go ahead, go ahead, finish your point. I, no, was, I, I just I, I think I think that it's a very different place in 30 years than you see now, and I, I think it could go either way. It could go more authoritarian, or it it could really emerge um, as a democracy. Well, Russia got involved with the U.S. effort in Afghanistan. But it seemed to be playing both ends against the middle. Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's essentially Putin's um, modus operandi. He's, he's not a strategist. He takes advantage of targets of opportunity. And then he does that move. That's the same move he's doing in Ukraine. It's the same move he did in Syria. Um, and, and so the problem is, is he can't really stitch those, those different things together in some kind of coherent strategic direction. I want to thank you so much for being on our show. Matthew Schmidt is Associate Professor of National Security and Political Science at the University of New Haven. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. Take care. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep-dive interviews of the sort that you don't hear anywhere else, I guarantee you nobody else has talked about the the current situation in Russia and Ukraine the way we just did. You can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And also, we're available, (coughs) excuse me, as a podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And there are links to our, all of our over 500 past shows at LeonardLopatAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I need to ask you to support Leonard Lopez at Large and WBAI so we can continue to bring you the kind of informative, in-depth interviews you've come to expect from us. And it's the beginning of a new year. We hope that you'll consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10 a month or $15 a month or whatever you can afford to help us get through the next year and also pay all of our bills, which... Um, Keep on adding up. So please go online right now to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping London Lopez Lodge and WBAI on the air. Uh, one last time, the number is 212-209-2950. Or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And please be sure to make the contribution in the name of London Lopez at Large. And thanks. Well, we hope you'll join us again for tomorrow's show when Howard French will discuss Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and and the making of the modern world, 1471 to the Second World War. We'll see you then.